Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry. Today's podcast is a really special one. This is the live audio from our second Pietas Honors Program Colloquium. The topic is Courage in Print, and it features two Bethel journalism professors, Scott Winter and Yuli Chang-Zacker. It was a really great conversation, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Keep listening to the feed this week. Uh, Over the next probably 10 days, we're going to be dropping maybe four or five different podcasts. Uh, Lots of fun stuff, so I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you keep listening. Well, thanks for coming to our um, second uh, colloquium event. Tonight, we have two of our journalism, well, our two journalism professors uh, here with us to explore the topic of courage and print. So I'm going to introduce each of them, and then we are just going to sort of take it away from there. Sam and I have some prepared questions for our guests, but we also have, just like for those of you that were here the first time, we have paper and Ella and Bailey will be circulating their paper and pens. If there are specific questions that you'd like to ask, we would love it, actually, if you would ask questions. I know some of you need to register tonight, so just go to the back to register and then come on back up and grab a seat. So, Scott Winter is the author of the 2015 book, Nebraska Ball. Buy three copies. He's been a journalist and a publication advisor to unmentionable acclaim in four states and now props at Bethel University here in Minnesota. His students have won best of show competitions, pacemakers, and first awards. He likes the band Slater Kenny? Slater Kenny, 1970s Ford pickups, and red meat, even as a snack. He bought a snowblower this weekend off of Craigslist. It's pretty old, but he thinks it might work. <laughs> Welcome, Scott Winter. Thank you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Yuli Chang Zacker is an associate professor in the English department. Did I pronounce your the last name right, Yuli? Zacher. Zacher, okay. Is associate professor in the English department where she teaches news reporting and writing, journalism for social change, and international journalism. She also coordinates the internship program for English and journalism majors and minors. Her professional background was in broadcast journalism. She worked as a correspondent for a network television station in Taiwan and specialized in coverage of economic affairs and diplomacy. During that time, she also contributed stories to CNN World Report about political or economic development in Taiwan. Her research interest covers two main areas, the role of media in shaping public opinion and cultural and policy impact of global media in Asia. She has published in various mass communication journals, including Journalism and Mass Communication Quarterly. She got her BA in English from Fudan Catholic University in Taipei. Her MA was from Journalism School of the University of Missouri-Columbia, and she received her PhD in Journalism and Mass Communication from Ohio University. Please welcome Julie. Mm. So, um, to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about um, kind of how you came to writing and how you came to journalism, and um, maybe you want to make a distinction between writing in general and journalism specifically, um, and then like, what type of journalism specifically do you guys do? I uh, came to journalism actually after I got my master's from the University of Missouri. Uh, that was sort of my initiation into the world, world of journalism. Before that, I focus more on the English literature side. And um, so that really opened up the door for me to venture into journalism. And after that, I just started working as a broadcast uh, correspondent. And what I covered mostly uh, was about economic affairs. And uh, at, at that time, Taiwan was very 
aggressively uh, pursuing to join a lot of the international economic, you know, um, forums. Therefore, I had just tons of opportunities to report overseas and. So during all these kinds of report, in, in all, among these, all these kinds of reportings, uh, diplomacy really played a major role in it. So that was kind of like my expertise. Yeah. I got into journalism through nepotism. So like, <laughs> my dad was a sports editor in town, in my little town of Bismarck, North Dakota, and he would say, um, clean your room, which I didn't do, and clear out the dishwasher, which I didn't do. And then he'd say, like, go cover that hockey game, which I did do because I got paid minimum wage to do it. And I thought it was really easy. So I did that, and I'm old enough to where I could work my way through college and pay for college. So I worked as a full-time news writer and sports writer through college. But academically, I, was, I had no interest in journalism at all. Um, except just to have, you know, my face in the paper and my column in the paper. I was more interested in literature, and I think the literature backgrounds that both Dr. Chang and I have have served us well to differentiate ourselves from other journalists because we have more of a literary bent. Um, and my passion has always been for both creative nonfiction and fiction. Actually, I'm just not a good enough fiction writer to get published enough to call myself that. So do you do other types of writing? Uh, mostly now I do, uh, in terms of long form, it's just about research, research articles. And, but I do enjoy the, the whole process, though. So, yeah. Um, but not really like writing journalistically. It's, it's different, right? So I've done some academic writing, which I don't like. I've done creative nonfiction, which I love. And you know, hopefully I'm going to take off on another book in the spring. Um, I love fiction. And I'm also in a, a kind of mini writing group of with a couple of journalists in town. And we're writing a screenplay about um, kind of a radical college newspaper staff. Yeah, fictionalizing all the stupid stuff my the the clearing staff does. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. <laughs> so we we titled this um, this colloquium uh, "Courage in Print." Um, and when when you think about uh, when you think about writing in general, journalism specifically, is courage something that's that's part of that? Is that or or did we come up with a bad idea for a colloquium? No, I think if you're doing it right, it's everything about that. I mean, even the smallest of stories is about courage and having the courage to tell, tell, tell truth. I think the thing that separates writers from non-writers isn't just the fact that they're typing on a keyboard or writing in a notebook. It's that they're noticing truth all the time around them and they want to record them for history or they want to take on truth. So they want to, they're curious enough to challenge suppositions all the time. And to put your name on that and publish it and be responsible and accountable for that um, that takes courage, that takes guts, you know, especially if you're going to reach into a deeper honesty. Yeah, I think um, Scott will tell you maybe more about like what the current has to deal with on a daily basis, what our staff writers have to go through for all the stories. But if we look at journalism on a more like a national or international scale, 
um, investigative reporting is one of the best prime examples of journalists taking courage to pursue the truth, um, especially when um, you don't have a big corporation behind you, and yet you are still doing the work that can, you know, um, offend maybe the, 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 the most powerful person in the state or in whatever, right? And and you are all alone by yourself doing the digging and, and all of that. And if we also bring it up a notch to talk about international communication, international journalism, then we have all these correspondents doing the, the war conflicts reporting and some of them really, I mean, there are just tons of examples of people who died covering conflicts, covering war. So why do they do that? You know, and, and it's just a drive to, to, to want to present the truth to, to, to the rest of the world, which may not care much. Um, so that takes tremendous courage for them to do that. I mean, when I think about that, I, I often think of this terrible, terrible movie that came out when I was in college. My wife and I are big Al Pacino fans. He's a great actor, Godfather, all these great movies. But he's in a terrible movie with the great Keanu Reeves called Devil's Advocate. This is one of the worst movies ever made, um, which is not a fact, but we can all agree on it. So when the devil comes to earth, he comes as a lawyer, of course. And then when that doesn't work out and Keanu defeats him, um, because he has dynamic range as an actor, um, when that doesn't work, he tries again as a journalist. Well, what is it that these two professions have in common, the law and journalism? Well, they're both tasked with the huge responsibility of kind of sticking up for the individual rights of people, of, of sticking up for the little guy, you know, of keeping us protected from the powers that be, whether they are corporate or any other institution, a political institution, a religious institution, any institution, and they are demonized, often like demonized, Al Pacino, demonized by power, people in power. So to take on power, whether you're in Russia where you can get killed for it as a journalist, or as a poet, or as a fiction writer, uh, takes guts, but it also takes guts in America, where you can um, have the mayor come in, the governor come in, and try to get you fired, which has happened to my wife more than once, you know, because she found out stuff they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing, you know. I was going to ask how that works in terms of with supervising students on the committee and, and this notion of, you know, putting yourself out there, that your identity is attached to it, and in the case of a student newspaper, that publication is a part of a community that you are living in, that you are a student in, that you have you do have authority figures over you within this community context. And so can you say a little bit more about how you talk about this issue of, you know, courage with the types of stories that you're covering when you also are living in that community and have different sort of roles that you play and there might be ramifications for something that you would write. Well, I think when we interview for a clearing editor, we're looking for somebody who has uh, a good sense uh, of the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, but also somebody who has a good sense for fairness, somebody who has a good sense for um, what the role of a newspaper should be as a public forum for students, right? It's not the same as, say, BSG, which represents students. This is an open public forum for students where you have to investigate truth, and it's not an airbrush truth. 
if you think about high school, when you think about the publications in high school, you have a newspaper and you have a yearbook. Well, in the yearbook, those photos are airbrushed, right? We get rid of the zits. But in a newspaper, the zits are there because life has a lot of zits, even really disgusting, explosive ones. You know what I mean? Those are the ones people remember, unfortunately. Boy, that was gross. I didn't plan on going down that path <laughs> at all. Anyone else? Well, I think it's very important to know that um, our students do go through a very rigid process in discussing what kinds of stories we are going to tell and the way we are going to tell the stories. So there is this editorial process that each and every one goes through just to make sure that we are doing it right. It is not so much based on one person's decision. It is mostly a group discussion, especially when ethics uh, are involved. Uh, um, so um, I, just the efforts that, that, that are put into it is, is, is something that I think we all should all know and, and kind of appreciate. Not that we're looking for pats on the back, but just as an example, there's a journalist in this room who has a high sense of social justice, and because of that, the first two stories she did in a reporting one class were supposed to go in the clarion. In the end, those two stories didn't run because of ethical issues, not anything she had done wrong, but we just found that we couldn't really trust the source in one of the stories, and one of the other stories, something else went wrong. So those stories never saw the light of day. Sometimes even your best decisions don't even make it into the paper. And nobody knows that you did that work. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I don't want it to be too self-congratulatory, but, but there's a lot that goes into that. So we're really looking for editors who, who have a sense of fairness and, and ethics. I was just looking at the, I brought the SPGA Code of Ethics, that's a Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, and this is just really important to, to a college newspaper staff, a professional newspaper staff. But it basically comes down to four points. Number one, seek truth and report it. Number two, minimize harm. The problem with one and two is sometimes they come in conflict with each other. Sometimes the truth does harm to people, which is why you don't tell your mom how she looks in that one dress. You know what I mean? You need to tell her she looks great because you want to minimize harm, but you know, they can conflict. Number three, act independently. I mean, there are administrators, there's a common marketing department, there are professors who always want certain stories in the clarion because it makes them look good, you know what I mean? But you have to act independently on what you think students need. And lastly, being accountable and transparent. So when you make a mistake on the front page, you correct it on the front page, you know what I mean? And you follow through on that, and, you know, you have integrity in that respect. That's way too much journalism stuff, sorry. But. Well, that's why we're here, right? So uh, when, when, when students come in, uh, a prospective student or um, a student says, oh, I want to, I think I want to study journalism, how aware are, are someone who's not already in the, the world, how, how aware are they of some of these ethics things, some of the sort of, you know, I guess we're talking about courage, and that means that implies a kind of risk as well. How aware are students of that when they start? Or how surprised are they when they learn about it? I think most of them are kind of surprised to learn about what goes behind um, the decision-making process and, and just how much um, has gone into that. 
to see to have a story see the light of the day. Um, most of them are very surprised. Yeah. I mean, my dad's a journalist. My wife's a journalist. I'm a journalist, and there are people in my family who think New York Times is fake news. You know, you can't expect anybody has any idea of what you're talking about when you're talking about these issues. And that means that we as journalists have done a bad job of uh, letting our citizenry know what goes into a real valid news story. Part of that has to do with the economics of a broken industry, but a lot of it has to do with the internet and social media as well. Awesome tools which have been used for evil instead of awesome, especially in our business. Can you talk more about how that's affected journalism? And, and, and even some of these questions about, like, you know, I can't remember what the, the first one in the code was, but it was seeking after truth or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, how has the, the impact of social media and the way, we, the way we've weaponized it or used it affected uh, the work that you do, the work you train students to do? A lot of students don't uh, read news from what we call mainstream um, news outlets. Liberal commie media. (laughs) (laughs) So all they rely on um, are Facebook, Twitter, and and I think that's really doing a disservice for uh, our consumption of news. Therefore, what we do in journalism courses partly is also about media literacy. Mm-hmm. It's about telling them, you know, how do you tell whether a site is legit? Okay, how do you tell how to differentiate from fake news and real news. Um, that's also part of what we do to our students as well. I'm teaching a feature writing class right now, and one of our texts is best magazine writing in 2016 in America. Okay, So it's supposed to be the best of the best. And two stories in there are from BuzzFeed. And BuzzFeed did this incredible investigation into um, into these these visas that, that that foreign workers get, so they can come into the country legally instead of being um, uh, breaking immigration laws, so they can work jobs that no Americans want. And it was a great investigation. It's an amazing piece of journalism. But if you look at that same story on BuzzFeed.com, it's surrounded by all this clickbait garbage, right? All this what I would call junk food as opposed to gourmet food. I can find out everything I need to know about Kim Kardashian you know, everything I don't want to know about Kim Kardashian on the same page as clickbait as this great piece of journalism, right? Which makes me not even trust BuzzFeed, which just did this great piece. So who to trust is really difficult to know, and it's really difficult for some people in my family to know, some voters to know, which is scary for a democracy if they don't know what's true. I mean, I know there, I have family members who uh, got most of their news probably from Russian bots, right? In the last election. But they'll never admit that because it's the liberal media that's telling them that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, we have a truth problem in this country, and it's scary. 
Are there positives to those two reasons? Oh, of course. I mean, I, I mean in, in to journalists, not just like, yeah. Well, for journalists, it's great. It's a great way to source stories. It's a great way to have your readers help you find great stories. I love it because, like, I would say that, yeah, there's tons of garbage just on one channel, let's say Twitter. Tons of garbage out there, right? But I also follow 25 amazing investigative reporters, 20 amazing um, feature writers, and I'm a bit of a sports goon, so I follow 15 of my favorite sports writers too, and it filters out exactly what I want. The problem is, if what I want is just stuff that agrees with me, that's a problem, right? So I just want to make sure that I'm not just consuming junk food, that I'm getting some gourmet food and that I'm using that tool to help me find the best gourmet food out there to make me healthy, you know, when it comes to news. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So throughout the night, I have some questions which are sort of you giving us advice. Um, there's the first, first one of these. What should we be reading? Yeah. Read I <laughs> Personally, I like non-fiction um, and I think <coughs> if I had more time I would really like to read anything historical I think history is so important and and um, I think our students now may be getting farther and farther away from history and biography I love biography as well um, um, I wish I had time for more fiction, fictional writing, but I simply, I simply don't. Um, um, so, I think they should consume This American Life podcast format, Radio Lab. I think um, reading really just great writing from fiction writers like. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, like the greats like Flannery O'Connor or Faulkner, but all the way through some of the best contemporary stuff. I mean, Cormac McCarthy. I think some of the best fiction writing ever is being done now. I think some of the best journalism is being done now. What Catherine Boo has done in India, um, Susan Orleans. That, that there's just great things being written. Um, well, I love the Southern writers, Southern fiction. Because I think it's the greatest stuff there is, and I have like personal preference, but I have no interest in celebrity anything. Like the lives of rich people don't interest me at all. You know what I mean? I like really gritty stories about people. Rick Bragg says, says this. We used one of his books. He's a former New York Times reporter. He's a professor at University of Alabama now, but he um, he said he spent his whole career. Uh, a lot of the stories are sad because he spent his whole career doing stories about people who found themselves uh, e either by their own fault or through no fault of their own in the path of the train. And those are the stories that he likes to write because that's where we find humanity and find a deeper truth. And so I think fiction writers get to that. I think um, poetry gets that. Our own poet on staff here, Angela Shannon, gets to that kind of truth in poetry. And I think whoever's you know getting to those kinds of truths are the people we should be reading in order to make God's kingdom what it could be. Boy, that was preachy. Sorry. About that. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, so thinking about your own your own careers in writing and in journalism and this idea of 
taking risks, things like that. What's the biggest, so sort of story time, what's the biggest risk you've taken in, or that you found yourself, situation you found yourself in? You took more risks than I did. No, I didn't. <laughs> well, I, um, I work at a station that was controlled by the government. Actually, back then, all the networks in Taiwan were controlled by the government. So, um, just trying to be able to just sneak some voices of opposition into the status quo uh, was a challenge all the time. And I think I feel most, I mean, the balance was the hardest for me when I had to do a series of stories on nuclear power plant policy. At that time, Taiwan was trying to build a fourth nuclear power plant, and it was full of controversy. Protesters died because of, you know, uh, um, just, just all kinds of things were happening. And for me to be able to sneak in any kinds of oppositional views was like hard. So all I could do was just hope that on that day when my story was gonna air, the manager wouldn't have enough time to go through my scripts. <laughs> so you've got all the, you, you, you know how to do self-censorship. You, you, would, you would know that, oh, this won't, this won't even pass, you know, and so that was, I think, the, the hardest part of, of the job at that time. And that's, that's common, that's self-censorship, and I think students do it way too often. They figure, oh, we'll never get away with this. But you can't think of it in terms of getting away with it. If you do it well and you do it fair, it's kind of related to one of your earlier questions. Um, I had an editor once say that your, your, your credibility is like a savings account, and every story you do that's fair and reaches a greater truth, you get some pennies in that account. But as soon as you mess it up, you're bankrupt again. You have to start at zero. So you have to be really careful, right? But if you're also a journalist who just writes about butterflies and duckies and bunnies, right? I once had a creative writing professor who said, who said, um, you, you can be in this class, even if you're a sorority member, as long as you don't write about butterflies and, and he had a list of stuff that you just can't write about. Um, and I kind of feel that way about journalism too. You, you have to write about things that really matter, or as my wife calls it, step over times for dollars. So like my example is like for my basketball book, which is the definitive book on <laughs> Nebraska losing basketball games, um, my coach, was incapable of saying probably three sentences in a row without an F-bomb coming in there. And he said, I just want to be clear on this, you know, my mother doesn't know I swear, and I don't want her to find out. And, you know, there's no way I could write this book without, you know, putting any swear words in it, it would be dishonest. So managing that was a small risk I had to take. Um, and also, I had to fight with the publishers on all those. We, we negotiated pretty much every F bomb in that book. Um, because I thought it was true what he was saying. I mean, that was the word he was saying. Anyway, um, probably the biggest one, though, is I went to college with a guy named Chuck Klosterman, 
And Chuck Klosterman is this big time culture vulture uh, journalist who's been in the New York Times and on ESPN and in This American Life and Esquire. Basically, he's gotten to do everything that I always planned to do in my career. And we used to make fun of him in college all the time. And we thought he was this nerd who was full of bravado. And, and so I wrote a piece about how my friend and I wanted to beat up Chuck Klosterman because he was coming to speak at the university where he used to teach. And so I wrote this piece about how we, we planned to just get him in an alley and just beat the snot out of him. And, and, and what the piece was really about was my own inferiority complex, that he had done everything that I didn't have the courage to do, you know? So in writing that piece, I was taking the risk that I hadn't taken earlier in my career. And it got published in a magazine, and he emailed me like a couple days later and said, yeah, I pretty much agree with everything you said, except you had the name of the class wrong that we were in together where you guys made fun of me. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I should have a good punchline for that story. <laughs> how do you know when something you've written is successful? However, you want. To, however, how do you think about what is success in writing in journalism? The landscape, the political and economic landscape, just changes. <laughs> that happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the third story. <laughs> Well, I, um, I guess um, I don't think my stories have gotten like any big impact in terms of policy change, that kind of a thing. Um, but I think from peers. Um, sometimes you do get recognized by your peers. They will say, hey, good work, and, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, what is She's it? being modest. She has a very aggressive research agenda. She's been published in all the biggest publications you can be published in in, in our field. So don't let her get away with that. Um, but I asked the same question to a former colleague of ours, um, Stilis Alistair, who used to teach journalism here. And now she writes kids' books, and I asked her the same question. And she said, uh, no, you can't judge it in sales, which I was very thankful for, because you <laughs> uh, <coughs> have these huge sales numbers. But she said, you know, she just feels like she can impact somebody, right? And I think when you publish and it's public, I think you're impacting a lot more people than you know, because particularly in our field of journalism, the only people you really hear from are the people who are really ticked off about what you publish. And I would argue that there's just as much positive sentiment out there, but they don't run up to the journalists and say, wow, that was great, you really changed things, you know what I mean? But I would argue the Star Tribune is publishing a story every two weeks that's having a big impact on policy, that's having a big impact on individuals, uh, changing how people feel about um, the elderly, elderly, changing how people feel about affordable housing in this town. I mean, we're trying to do that now, and it's hard. It's not easy work. But if you're doing it not for yourself, and if you're doing it humbly, um, and you're just trying to right wrongs, or just try to... Um, at the bottom of all my wife's emails, she has um, the Justice Brandeis quote, um, the best uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know what I mean? And I think if you have that in mind with every story, big or small, that you're doing, or even every poem, 
or every short story, every novel, then I think you, you're going to do right in the world, even if it just affects a couple people. Yeah, this reminded me of a um, of an experience shared with me by a Star Tribune reporter, and he was just um, it was like a week weekend, and it was kind of a snow news day. And it wasn't his beat, but he was kind of like assigned to write an obituary. Um, so he looks through the desk, no notices and that. And he found a, um, a young man who committed suicide. And he saw, hmm, there could be a story to tell. And then he contacted the family. And the family was just very gracious about sharing the story about this um, newly grad from college who was just dealing with a lot of uh, um, mental issues. And he was a competitor. He just wanted to win, win, win. So, um, so he was going through all these uh, 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 mental breakdowns and, and all that, and he finally committed suicide. And from the family's perspective, um, they wanted to tell the story just to, to, to alert people about finding help early, you know, uh, 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 paying attention to, to your family, your friends, and, and just trying to help them uh, before it was too late. And this story ended up to be the most read story of that day. I mean, even though this possibly did not create some kind of a policy change or, you know, uh, any so-called big, huge impact, but it, it did touch a lot of people, and, and, and people did care to, to read about it. How much do you when, you, when you are writing, do you think about readers in general, or do you have a reader in mind, or how does that work? Because I think like when you, um, in certain areas in art, you're not supposed to think about necessarily who's going to read this or how they're going to read You're just making the art. But like, this is more of a communication, right? So like, so how does that work? It's huge to have your readers, uh, uh, to know your readers, because that dictates what kinds of stories you're going to write. And, and it also helps you to know what language to use. For example, if I'm publishing um, in a scholarly journal, uh, my audience will be my, you know, my peers um, in academia, right? And, and the way I write it will be so different from writing a news story. And if you are writing for, for a community newspaper, uh, uh, you have this you have the readers in, in that community, and you know what they care about. But if you are writing for New York Times with a national audience, you know, the topics and, and, and just, it makes all the difference. That, I both agree and disagree with that answer, no offense. <laughs> like, what Dr. Chang's talking about is news judgment, and that's something I want my editor, editor to have, right? Um, and I think it's important for the editor to have news judgment. How many people is this going to affect, and how big a deal is this? Is this a front page story? Is this a back page story? Is this a story we shouldn't even be doing? I want my editor to worry about that. When I'm a writer, um, I'm very selfish. 
you know, I am kind of the artist who's selfish, and I don't want to fall into the conventional wisdom. So let's go back to that story. Was that Brandon Stahl's story, the, mm-hmm. the suicide? So conventional wisdom is you never write about suicides because if you write about suicides and you glorify that human being, uh, you could create an epidemic. Like people, oh, I can get famous and get in the Star Tribune if I commit suicide, and boom, you have three more the next day. So most editors, the conventional wisdom is don't do that. But Brandon with that story tapped into something that, that his readers needed that day. You know what I mean? So he had to break the conventional rules of news judgment to do that. So to me, like, when I was in college, when I was your guys' age, I was a hockey writer, right? So every day the same thing happened. Like, somebody dropped a puck, one team won, one team lost, there were three periods, and some people cared, some people didn't. Some people drove snowmobiles to the ice rink. I don't know. And then I would have to go into the Zamboni room and type it up on the world's first laptops that were horrible and awful with gloves with no fingers in them that I'd cut off because Michael Jackson hadn't invented that yet. So, you know, and I send it off to the paper and I try to get home and beat deadline and all that stuff. But, um, in the end, I didn't want to write the same hockey story that had ever been written before. I was an artist, right? And I wanted to find a new angle nobody had ever seen. I wanted to bring readers to that hockey game who didn't care about hockey. You know what I mean? So I think there's that in a journalist, too, who wants to be completely original and work convention, too. So I think that's a new way to reach an audience, too, right? So it's kind of both in the end. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm more. I was more talking about the news judgment side yeah. of it. You know, it's not so much about the writing itself. Right. It was about what's news. And what's my, newsworthy? I want my bosses to worry about that if I'm the writer. You know what I mean? Don't have to worry about it too. Um, do you have a? Uh, I'm trying to not use the word hero, but that's all I can think of. Like, like heroes and journey, like people who you look at and say, like, that's the type of work I, I would, I would, I aspire to, or, or maybe not even you aspire to, because, because, like, I always feel like in, when you're looking at, when I look at writing or painting or something like that, that there's, there are, there are painters who make me want to paint, and there are painters who make me want to stand in awe of right. what people can do. Right. Almost like who are the who are the people that you want to sort of see yourself in some kind of a relationship with their work? Well, like for me, like Richard Rousseau is such a great novelist. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize for um, Empire Falls, I think. But I, I love Nobody's Fool, Straight Man, all these great books by him. But he's the kind of guy who writes a book that makes me angry because I should have written that book. You know what I mean? That's a great writer. But I also have like journalists that I really aspire to who do things, writerly things, writerly tricks, or they notice things that I think, man, I should have noticed that. So whenever like a story in the newspaper or a story in a magazine or a novel makes me mad, that's somebody, you know, those are my heroes. That's like, I wish I had done that, right? The yeah. humans in New York, how many of us could have come up with that? That's ridiculous that it should have been us making a million dollars off that, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think in writing, I really like um, Rick Bragg. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's just his way of blending human stories into serious social justice issues. I mean, his writing is just, just great. Um, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell is another one for me. He takes complicated information and makes it narrative, puts a narrative on it, 
a lot of people have criticized him for this because they think his conclusions are ridiculous, but they're just jealous that they didn't think to do what he's doing, taking the academic, scientific stuff that she writes and making it for humans. Yeah, that's a cool thing to be able to do. Sorry, I interrupted Oh, you. no, no, that's fine. And I like what Christoph, Nick Christoph? Nick Christoph has been doing. I know some people we could... We should bring him here in the spring, shouldn't we? I hope so, yeah. Um, some people criticize him about what he does. He kind of goes into advocacy sometimes. I know there have been controversies about that, but but I think what he has been doing in terms of, you know, um, educating the poor, saving the, um, especially the young, and, and educating the women in um, developing countries, just very, I just admire him for that. Yeah. Um, you talk, you talk, you both mentioned, um, you know, doing work for television, work for, or, um, uh, when I when you asked about what you should be reading, you went the first two things you said were podcasts, which are uh, reading in the same way. Like like, what is the relationship between the thought of writing? Because um, I guess when I when I think of journalism, like the first thing that comes to mind because I'm old enough to think of like a newspaper is what I'm thinking of. Like, like what are the consequences of and and good and bad of all these other forms of media? You know, pivoting to video, those types of things uh, for writers, journalists, things like that. Is something lost when it's not print on a print on a page or print on a screen or I mean obviously technology is ramping up faster and faster and faster, right? But this was also an issue like when the telegram happened, it disrupted news. When when T V happened, it disrupted radio, right? Um, when radio happened it disrupted newspapers. That's nothing new. And so um, all those media had to find a way to alter what they did in order to survive. Um, we always have to start our first news class with, you know, how did you learn about, well, it's changes now, but how did you learn about 9-11? How did you learn Osama bin Laden being killed? Well, you, none of them learned it from a newspaper, the traditional source that you and I would think of. They all learned it through something else, through Facebook, through social media, through some other way. So how does it, why does a newspaper still exist? Because it changed, you know? It had to morph into something different. So there are no newspapers anymore, I would argue. There are just more papers. What can they give that the initial report on TV, which isn't really journalism, I'm not supposed to say that, but um, that they couldn't give in the moment, you know what I mean? I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I think the delivery systems are getting more diversified, and that that is good. But the fundamental part about doing great reporting and good writing doesn't change. Mm -hmm. That Does it part. Get lost though. Yeah. Um. It gets lost in analysts. It gets lost in commentary. Where you have, I would argue, on a 24-hour news channel, you've got 5% reporting and 95% what what we call in my house news fighting. Let's put four people on this side, four people on this side. Let's have them shout back and forth about the three facts they know about this story instead of sending somebody out in the field to get more facts and tell me another story that matters or some depth or some complexity that matters. You know what I mean? Another piece of advice moment. Uh, why should we all be writing more? 
Or should we all be writing? <laughs> writing is fun. Oh, that's a real mom. <laughs> when somebody doesn't want to do that no more. My kindergarten, when my kids were in kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher told them it was home fun. That's <laughs> homework. Writing is thinking. And putting it down on paper has some permanence to it. And so you're careful about how you think, right? You bring some level of rigor to what you think before you write it down, unless you're texting, unless you're emailing really quick, unless you're doing this. And I think all that texting and all that email and all that tweeting and all that, that um, Instagramming is great. I love it, as long as you're also bringing some content with it that matters, right? Again, it's a tool. It's a tool that can make you a better thinker if you use it right. You know? So what does your writing process look like? We're the opposite. <laughs> I'm a bulldozer. I come back from an interview, I come back from an event, um, like get food out of here, I'm not gonna go to the bathroom, just get me a keyboard, I wanna get to it. And I'm going to crash through it and bulldoze through it until I'm exhausted and pass out or realize, oh crap, i got to go to the bathroom, okay? And then I'll go back and I will be really careful about every edit after that and every word will have to be perfect. You know what I mean? Um, unless it's a really long, long, long form piece, I'm not outlining or anything, I'm going to trust my instincts on what's most important, what's next most important. I'm going to trust my instincts on how I want to tell a story, just like how you would tell a really good joke. You know what I mean? I'm going to trust my instincts on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust my experience to just crank that thing out and then go back and make it better. Whereas you do it very differently, especially if you're doing academic writing, right? Um, of course, I would have as much data as I want, as much research done uh, beforehand. And then I would have an outline. And then I would kind of like use um, colored, little colored uh, note uh, tags. And I would use different colors. For example, this will go to the first part, intro. That will go to the second part. I kind of like organize materials into different parts. And then I started, you know, just digging into it from, sometimes I'm, I, I don't start with the beginning, I start with maybe the, the second part first, or, or the data part, but I, I do have, I do need an outline um, to tackle the whole writing process. And even though I dress the way I dress, I do have a system, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I might not have four different colored highlighters like Dr. Chang does, but there is a system. I mean, if you saw my notes, you'd see that that I have a coding system and whatever. Yeah, something somewhat organized is happening. <laughs> well, we passed around cards. Do we have questions? Great. Right? Yeah. Yeah, looks like somebody's going to win. We win. I know. In journalism, do you believe in the idea of absolute freedom of speech, even when hurtful or controversial or detrimental? As you noted at the beginning, some truth can hurt. That's a tough one. 
I think um, you may cloud truth to protect the innocent. Um, journalists, editors are not going to want to print the names of um, victims of abuse, sexual abuse. You know, even th there are rules in place to protect us from that, in fact. So if you are a police reporter, cops and courts reporter, and you get sent to cover a crime, there's a burglary at this one house. If you look in the Star Tribune or the Pioneer Press or the New York Times or your local paper from a little, from Farmington, um, you'll notice that the exact address isn't in there. That they'll just say on the 1700 block of this street. Because they don't want that victim to be identified and have them get, you know, a second attack or something like that or somebody making fun of them. Or, and, you know, they don't want anything like that. So, because that's not germane, you can't, you don't need to tell tell their name and their exact address to tell a better story, right? So, to protect innocent, we may cloud truth. Um, or, um, but I think you have to be careful about. I think, for example, sometimes people go to Clarion editors and say, "Hey, you shouldn't cover this because the community isn't ready to take on that topic." And I think that is kind of a condescending message to send to to um, a university community of adults. You know, give them a chance to wrestle with it before you you tell them they can't handle it. But if you're going to take on a topic that some people feel that way about, you better get it right. Right? You better do it fairly. It better be accurate and all that. I don't know. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think these growth on the. Um, the two concepts in um, SPJ's um, Code of Ethics tell the truth and um, minimize, harm. minimize harm, right? Tell the truth and minimize harm. I think for us, a lot of times we have to judge who the person is involved. If that person is a public official, or a public figure, um, somebody who is responsible for using tax dollars. We want to hold that person to the highest standard, mm -hmm. all right? And and you know we just want to tell as much as we know. But if this person is a private citizen, all right, and he or she deserves a certain kind of privacy. And, and in this case, we really want to wrestle with how much we need to tell about his or her story and how much is really in the public interest, uh, 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 how much is to the concept of the right to know. Mm -hmm. So I think there is this, this thing, we use this kind of a judgment sometimes. Uh, 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 in deciding to what extent we want to so-called cloud the truth or we want to just bring it right hard on. And there, there are two ways, the two other things that I like to do with classes are thinking about what truth you put in and what truth you don't put in because really this whole argument over objectivity and subjectivity is a little bit silly when it comes to journalism because when you're choosing what truth to tell and what truth not to tell, that's a subjective act. Right? So think of it in this term. Let's say a freshman gets a DUI at Bethel. Is that a story? 
Is it? A freshman, is that a public figure? Right? Should that be in the paper at the Clarion? Now, what if that freshman is on BSG? Now, is it a story? What if that freshman is quarterback of the football team? Is that a public figure? What if it's Dr. Ching's locker? Is that a story for the Clarion? What if it's a board of trustee member? What if it's the wife of the president? You know? These are hard questions, right? And how you choose to answer them determines what kind of publication you are, frankly. I don't know if that helps answer that. The other thing I would say is, the next thing we talk about is, we did in every newsroom I was ever at, is this idea of, is somebody in the storm or out of the storm? Because people who are out of the storm are more apt to have perspective on that storm. The problem is waiting for them to get out of the storm costs you timing and news value. But the other thing is, are you willing, like with this person, are you willing to talk to their mom? That's one of my tests. You know what I mean? Somebody's going through something difficult or something bad happened. Are you willing to talk to their mom on record? You know, if you're not willing to do that, you probably shouldn't be doing the story. I don't know if that helps. Kind of thinking about um, transparency uh, a bit differently, what is your opinion of journalists who publish works anonymously or those who publish under a pseudonym? Publish works anonymously. Uh, I can think of some instances where they had to. Because I came, I come from a system, a political system that was authoritarian back then, like 30, 40 years ago. We were under martial law. So lots of people um, spend their lives in prison because they wrote something that, you know, the government didn't like. Even if you wrote a song uh, uh, and people can interpret that lyrics as, you know, um, trying to overthrow the government. So there were instances where, especially journalists, you know, they at that time, almost all the papers were government-owned, so for you to be able to publish in this uh, grassroots oppositional paper, you had to use you had to use pen names, you had to use pseudonyms, and you know, that, that was a way of surviving. Um, but I'm not sure about now, or, or in the United States, I... I the problem of anonymity right, is that, that people is, don't trust it as much as, you know, putting your name out there and being held accountable for it. Mm -hmm. But, that said, we went to Guatemala with a bunch of graphic design students and journalism students, and we were able to do stories and feel safe and secure and asking tough questions. But if we went to Russia, like I'd love to take a trip to Moscow and St. Petersburg and the countryside to tell stories of social justice. If we went to Russia on student visas and found really good stories, I don't. I think we would use pseudonyms when we publish that magazine because I would worry about the safety of those journalists. 
What can the average person do to ensure that they are reading quality accurate news? I still rely on traditional mainstream media because I think there is a vetting process. These guys will go through a very rigid kind of a, a, a editorial process just to make sure things they publish are closest to the truth. Um, Anybody can tell a true story, and anybody can tell a fair story. But unless you have a process in place to ensure that, you know, a, a process that, that over time has worked, it's hard to trust that you're going to do it every time. And that's where people get in trouble. So I would check about pages. I would check to find out who is, who is funding those news sources. Uh, just be careful and find three or four that you trust. The more local and the more newspaper oriented they are, print oriented they are, the safer they are in my experience. Can you tell us what you read for news? Clarion. <laughs> I read I read I read the New York Times, the Star Tribune, the Pioneer Press, listen to NPR, NPR, and I avoid any television 24-hour news station. New York Times, Star Tribune, um, NPR, NPR, um, local papers sometimes, yeah. And, and on weekends, I rely on a lot of magazine journalism. So, to uh, thank you both very much for, uh, for joining us today. So a last question, because um, I'm sure everyone would like to, how do we, how do we get involved with uh, working with Clarion? <laughs> um, show up to a Tuesday or Thursday meeting in the loft at the Clarion newsroom. Um, sign up for reporting one. Um, you'll learn quickly how to do a story. Uh, getting published feels good feels good in your ego, looks good on your resume, um, and you get paid for your work, which is great. And the big thing about, you know, I hate to just plug, plug the clearing because there's other, you know, publications being involved in the Coeval and a lot of others as well, but the big thing is if you can prove to an employer in any major, any job, that you're a good enough thinker to have your words be published, or recorded for a podcast, I think uh, they, they trust you, they believe in you a lot more. Um, and more importantly for publications like the Clarion or the Pioneer Press or the Star Tribune, those, um, those staffs and those journalists need to represent their communities. You know what I mean? They need to have di not only diversity from an ethnic perspective, from a religious perspective, but just from a, a various schools of thought. In America, we, we all think differently. I, I don't want to preach here again, but, but we can't just have one kind of person becoming a journalist. You know what I mean? Uh, the New York Times admitted that after the election cycle. 
that they had no idea who Trump voters were, and that that was a huge failure on the part of the New York Times and the Washington Post admitted that as well, that they needed to have more diverse thought in their newsrooms. And the Clarion needs that too, frankly. And so they need majors from all over the campus to tell true stories. Yeah, get involved. I mean, it's just going to be so much fun. Um, imagine you can teach a topic and then you, you just pursue with the topic and you see your work printed. I mean, how, how amazing is that? It's not going to be easy. Right, you right. Might, you, you might cry. <laughs> you might kick the wall. But nothing good comes out of easy, I would argue. Well, we've reached the end of our time, so we want to thank you very much for your